When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Dr. Trip Fuller. He specializes in philosophy, intersections between science and religion. He and I will be discussing Catelyn's fourth POV chapter. This is our first look at King's Landing. Steve and I will be covering Blackwater. That's episode 9 of season 2, and you will remember... Uh, This episode is quite a doozy. Hey, by the way, Steve was really touched by those of you who followed him on Instagram. He was definitely not expecting it, so happy belated birthday, Steve Osborne. And, of course, it's not too late to follow him on Instagram, Ozfest, A-U-S-F-E-S-T. Quick note about my words I view this week. I asked three questions uh, about feedback related to the shape of Electric Bookaloo. I'd love to hear back from you. Book at baldmove.com. Without further ado, here is boss man, Aaron. Ask Aaron anything! All right, this is from Luke. Which Game of Thrones character disappointed you the most, TV or books? Might seem an odd question, but in the show, at least, Littlefinger's arc was not at all satisfying to me. In both the book and the show, he is one of the most intriguing characters. I hope Gurm has grander plans for him. I I actually disagreed that, and I I remember disagreeing with this take as it was happening on the podcast, because my take on Littlefinger is he's climbing the, the, the rungs of the Ladder of Chaos... And he made a fundamentally emotional decision to kind of like back Sansa because he both has his kind of pervy, you know, uh, mentor. Like he he definitely is grooming her. Okay. Yeah. And, and for the sake of Cat, who who is always a trophy for him that he could never acquire. Right. He's going to pound. I mean, this is all gross terminology. I don't know how to talk about it in a non gross way, but he's going to pound. Uh, um, Sansa into a cat shape and then get like, you know, hey, like younger, hotter version of what I always wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. And Sansa, to her credit, because of, you know, the, the the rapid growing up she has to do, can see through that. And he kind of makes a, an emotional rather than a purely tactical, logical mistake. And that one thing shook his grip on the ladder and put him on a trajectory where he just ran out of options. He's not going to talk himself out of any kind of scheme when he's in Winterfell at the seat of kind of like, for better or worse, goodness of Westeros, like loyalty and honor and pragmatism. Like he went away 
way far away from from any any of uh, the real politic of the the capital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like I thought saw him as just like that's yeah he's he ran out of things the 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 rungs the 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 climb because of decisions he made and you know you want him to be able to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat, but like where right. was the victory to snatch in his final moments? Um, I so I, I thought it he... was brilliant. I thought I loved the way that I, there was one of the few things about the show that that genuinely shocked me because I felt like mm-hmm. we had all figured out John's true parentage like years before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I I kind of knew I kind of had a a guess of where Danny's arc was going, but the thing with Littlefinger at the end where he's already had success dividing sister against sister. And he thinks he can do it again. Mm-hmm. And it just goes sideways on him in, in the worst possible setting. If it was in a back room, he could have got a, gotten out of it. Right. But because it was a public setting, Sansa and Arya have all the same power that Joffrey has in that public setting where Ned gets beheaded. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a political genius to just proclaim, I declare you... <laughs> You know, treasonous, and you're doomed to die. Yeah, you don't have to be political genius to say that in public. No, you just have to be have the political will and power to wield it. Um, Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I do think if I was going to agree with the the petitioner here, I do think that they what he might be complaining about is like all this works kind of broadly on paper, but like it was maybe a little clumsy in execution with the because I think you're right, like drawing the parallel between hey, I did pit sister against pister pister i did pit sister against sister successfully i'm trying it again it's working this isn't like you know with all the you know he's working out a safety net because now he's working in with amongst people who you know maybe can't be bribed and bought as easily um i i do think that there was a little you know a little bit of clumsiness and and how they told the story a little Mm -hmm. bit more instead of it being shades of gray it was a little bit more kind of black and white and railroady but I do feel like that, you know, uh, th- that that was also part of Game of Thrones entering the end game. That like characters didn't have the flexibility and options that they did have in season one. Um, and as those paths got fewer and fewer, there was less good things. Yeah, but yeah, there was. I, I think they could have done it ten to twenty percent better. I think that there's something also to be said for the fact that. Ned didn't understand King's Landing because all he ever knew was Winterfell. Yeah, the land and of honor and responsibility. In, re- yeah, and... in reverse, Littlefinger did not understand Winterfell because the only thing he ever knew was King's Landing. The North remembers, baby. Yeah, and I, I think that he, I think, I think that there's an interesting parallel there, and I, I find it interesting. Anyway, the, um, the South Lu- forgets, the North remembers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which, let's get back to his original question. Which Game of Thrones character disappointed you the most, TV or books? Man, I got a, uh, and it's, it's probably, you, you'll probably have a similar take on Littlefinger that you did on Littlefinger, but honestly, Tyrion, I guess, is the one where I remember at the close of book five, thinking man how is martin going to get Tyrion's mojo back because mm. this guy is just laid low and cannot yeah. Yeah. barely get out of bed he's obsessed with the betrayal of his brother and mm. his his father and his sister and this this wife that now he's even double fucked over because she was true blue you know the one that he yeah. lost away back Taisha. in the beginning yeah. 
yeah, and like you know, where do whores go? Where, 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 where is he going to get the you know get, get the bounce back in a step? And like, I feel like on Game of Thrones, the show, he had a couple of flashes where he, you know, like that that part where like he he had this empathy with the dragons that were was able him to do something create a crazy gamble, but he trusted his gut and it worked. But, didn't ever really pay off in the way that like a lot of us were thinking about, you know, I don't know how, if I ever thought that Tyrion's going to be a fucking dragon rider, but I'm just saying there's three dragons. Only two of them ever got rid. Feels like an oversight. <laughs> Felt like an oversight. That's you not know? true, man. That's not true. The night King got to ride that dragon. That's true. I'm talking good guys though. Heads Which, of the dragon. And we all know that the night That's no King head is of a really dragon. Brand, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so he did fly but no I, I felt like Tyrion like it, they're they're like man Tyrion just felt like he was always wrong those last three seasons so you're saying uh, that you you clearly you love Tyrion but you I do. don't like where he ended up no nah, I thought he's like it's not he's not the most shameful of the way they left characters or did them but like yeah I, I there was something that Tyrion was clearly my favorite character I think uh, I think I always said Tyrion, and Jim always said Davos. But like, he's clearly my favorite character, and uh, I just, you know, this isn't the same Tyrion in season two, season three. Um, and again, you know, he had his options, and he had limited things, and like, you know, he went from a world of possibilities down to just two or three. But I didn't necessarily like the the branches that he chose in his last few decision trees. Well, and it's interesting because you meant you started this by talking about the books, where like where he is in the books. Right. Yeah. How is he gonna? How's George gonna give him his mojo back? And it clearly the showrunners had the same problem, but never got it quite as mojo. Never. Yeah. He never quite got it back. Mm-hmm. But there is something about having sort of an older, wiser Tyrion that is is somewhat more interesting than than the carefree early Tyrion. Uh, yeah. I liked I I I liked the less cocky, less cocksure, more you know, a little bit more pragmatic, but also maybe a little bit more le- less cynical, more pragmatic, yeah. less cynical. Those don't usually go hand in hand, but like you know, I more willing to see like inherent goodness in the world. I do um, like this. I like the fact that he's he's constantly a cynic, like in a classic. In the classic sense of the term, he's 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 a he's a cynic until he actually finds a real dragon because he, he's always like been enamored with real dragons, and then when he puts the faith, he puts his faith in the in the dragon queen. That's exactly what gets him in trouble. So he's like a cynic, yeah. and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's like all in, like he's like part of the dragon religion. He's, he's got and as soon as he convert. gets religion, he gets he he really he really falls from grace. That's not a bad read on it, honestly. Because all right, I'm going to do this inverse of what Luke said. All right, so um, as far as the show goes, what is the most satisfying character arc? Brian. I was going to say Brian. I love Brian. She always wanted to be a knight. She wanted to see be seen as an equal amongst her peers, and she got it in the most bittersweet way. Yeah. Um, yeah. which I think, you know, like, I, I don't know that I love what they did with Jamie, but like Brienne getting what she wanted and also losing something important yeah. along the way felt very Game of Thrones. And like I said, 
I'm not a huge fan of season eight, but like that night of the realm, I think is the third episode where it's like all your old friends talking on the eve of a, of a, of a hopeless battle and yeah, doing yeah. those quiet character moments that they kind of dispensed with in, in terms of big action, still a great episode. And I think fantastic yeah, she... episode. I, I actually cry. I like I've cried. I've watched that episode probably three times or whatever. Yeah. And two out of three, I've cried that that is one of the one of these best moments of the entire show when she gets Oh, it's knighted. beautiful. Is this a is this a controversial opinion? I think Arya did was a you know, like they there's some messy in the middle, but like that feels like a plausible trajectory for her. You know. Yeah. This this assassin girl that takes down the the Night King uh that we uh, you yeah. know like um Again, whether you think that's too hasty or whatever, the fact is that, like, I never believed that the Night King was going to be the ultimate villain. Like, that, you know, uh, there would also be the task of rooting out the Lannisters and all that kind of stuff. So, like, yeah, I, I thought that was that was not bad. If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. Three, two, and one. one. Yeah, now we're synced. Synced. I feel. I feel it happening right now. <laughs> it's, it is. It's on. It's on. So, Trip Fuller, welcome. I appreciate you tuning in and chiming in from ye old Scotland. Oh yeah. And, you know, I'm not. I'm used to listening to you at uh, double speed. So now I don't know what to do. Right? It's just normal speed. Double isn't double a little bit too fast? I don't know. I even cut out the silences, and sometimes I do two point three. You're kidding? No, all that time driving across Los Angeles, I trained myself to be a uh, an audio expert, just listening at high speeds. Wow. I like to talk slow, so that might work. That might work. Uh, I also like to listen slowly. I like to read slowly. I do everything pretty slowly. Um, I'm yeah. I'm very turtle-like when it comes to words. How about you? I don't know. Probably not very turtle-like, unless I need to be. You know, for emphasis, like if you're parenting <laughs> and you get out of hand. Um, <laughs> See, my parent, my my kids just get bored. I'm like halfway through a sentence, my kids get bored and they start yawning. <laughs> well, you know the the uh, the the chapter we're talking about when Varys, you know, comes in. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I read the book before I had seen uh, the show, uh, my voice for him was a slow talker, and he always was just tapping his fingers together while he talked, like some like sure. you know, '80s cartoon villain. Yeah, and yeah. In, in, every time he said "little birds," it would go up. He said "little birds, little <laughs> birds," like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know what? For, I think that I like Varys a lot. And it's because of the show. I don't know if I would feel the same way about Varys if I just had the book to go on. He's I think it's one of the characters where the actor's portrayal really enhanced my experience. Yeah, and and but he also like gets more badass in the show and the further it goes on, you start mm. to see there's more going on. And um since the you know, we're still waiting. Yeah. We're still waiting for the next book. It might happen, yeah. But, it, yeah, you you don't know how badass Varys really is uh, because he doesn't reveal a whole lot about himself. 
So let me do a trip. Let me do a synopsis of the chapter, and then we'll get into it. All right. So here's my synopsis. Catelyn is traveling by sea aboard the Storm Dancer, one hour from her destination, King's Landing. She recalls her childhood relationship with Littlefinger and discusses payment with the captain. Once docked, the plan is for Cat to remain in a Riverside Inn while Roderick Castle seeks out a friend at the armory. All this is meant to be secretive. Once at the inn, Cat sleeps. She's woken by the city guard and taken to a tower near the Red Keep. She is met by Littlefinger. Seemingly, both he and Varys know of her arrival and of the attempt on Bran's life. Once Varys has arrived, she reveals the Valyrian steel dagger, and Littlefinger reveals that it belongs to Tyrion Lannister. Yeah, it's getting thick. It's getting thick in King's Landing. So, Trip, uh, guest choice. Uh, You want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or... Shall we just climb the ladder of chaos? Ooh, you know, I you know I listen to the podcast, and I feel like early on people tried to avoid the ladder of chaos, and now it's becoming too trendy. <laughs> so, so you as a dedicated hipster will always zag where other people zig. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, I wanted to talk about the uh, the subtle use of power. Because this is one of those moments where you get into King's Landing, you're figuring out the lay of the land, mm. you get you get Littlefinger's backstory, then you meet him, you get Varys and his little birds, mm-hmm. you get everything around the dagger. I just feel like the the subtle use of power in the Game of Thrones, this uh, this is the beginning of it. And obviously, uh, Caitlin, um, because of her you know defensiveness for uh, the kids, protectiveness, mm-hmm. it, it stirs up this anger. She's a more hot headed than her husband, and all this kind of stuff goes down. And then eventually, you know, uh, she comes back, uh, Lady Stoneheart style. Yeah. And so you get these three <laughs> different characters, and they each have different ways of using power. And Caitlin is like you know the zigger from the zagging of the other two. So yeah, you're right that the Game of Thrones is well underway. And I think it's interesting that we have these three personalities, I think three very different personalities in this sort of tower room. Mm-hmm. And so tell me, yeah, so, so who do you want to talk about first? So so clearly each one of them has a different kind of power to wield, uh, but which one do you want to talk about first? Well, I, I mean, I think the chapter starts off where you're getting the background story of, of Caitlin. Mm. And I know in, mm. you know, Caitlin chapter three, you kind of uh, between chapter three and chapter four, you just presume from the stories told in her perspective that this kind of like uh, energy and anger is building up. And all of a sudden that move from protective, you know, mother uh, sitting mm. beside her child's bed. Now she's like, oh, junk. He's got a wolf. Now I'm going to go get somebody. Yeah. I got a dagger. They try to they try to mess with me, mess with my kid. I'm gonna go find the dagger and I'm gonna cut some throats. Yeah, she's on and, the hunt. She, oh absolutely yeah, absolutely, she's on the hunt. So she's yeah, like my, so my she's son got, has a wolf, yeah. and now I'm a wolf. That's right. And on top of that, she's already thinking about Littlefinger before she gets to the capital. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's got unfinished business with him, but she knows that he represents a complicated part of her life and maybe represents some sort of danger. I don't know if she knows the extent of the danger, 
but she knows to be wary of him, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder, do you think that there's kind of a parallel in the sense that, you know, she's still, she's in the dark as to the background of Jon Snow and has to, mm-hmm. like, learn to deal with that and stuff. Right. Uh, and this is her realizing there's a backstory, right, um, before she got married, you know, the uh-huh. you know, brother dies and now she like switches who she's getting married to. Right. And then, uh, but she saves Littlefinger by intervening when he loses the battle for her. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, this, there's a set of secrets there, just like her, like her husband carries with them when he, they go to King Landing. Both, yeah. both of them have this person from their past that knows more of the secrets that, uh, that they don't know, um, you know, of the other. Yeah, I think so. And you know what else that makes me think of? It makes me think that maybe Littlefinger's presence in River Run informs her perception of Jon Snow and and maybe Theon too, because Littlefinger was a ward at River Run as a child, mm-hmm. and he ends up being a big problem. He ends up really sort of inserting himself in a way that is a com- complicated for the family. And it could be that she is now suspicious of that sort of person in her own household at, in Winterfell. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, maybe that informs some of her suspicion for Jon Snow. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. You know, this is the first time when, when I was listening along and then when you said, Hey, do you want to jump on? I'm like, I haven't read this book. Uh, in a while, yeah. because yeah, yeah, I've taught it, but before the show came out, um, I would teach philosophy of religion class, but use uh-huh. like philosophy of culture, right, and right. would pick different uh, different things. I've done like you know Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones together or whatever. Sure. But once the show came out, the kids kids <laughs> students are much more likely to binge watch Game of Thrones than actually read uh-huh. the book. Uh, so it was fun to go back and uh, read it, and so you know there was just these little little things I started to notice that when it's just, you know a two minute scene in the movie, you just kind of scoot on by. Right, right. Well, this whole chapter, I mean, we'll probably do the book versus show differences a little bit sooner than we should here, but this is this whole chapter is non-existent in the show, right? So I mean, other than sort of cat meeting Littlefinger. This is the kind of thing that you can do with a simple aerial shot of King's Landing. Because the purpose of this chapter, it seems to me, for the most part, is to introduce for the first time in a really robust way the culture of King's Landing. Mm-hmm. And the architecture of King's Landing. And the, the muck and the mire of, you know, the brothels, of you know, the ships, the quays in the bay and all of that business. It's a setting chapter. So you can set that scene for the most part with the really like two seconds aerial shot, CGI enhanced, tell most of what this chapter tells in just that short little clip. So if you're an you know, if you're a screenwriter and you're adapting this book, this is exactly the kind of chapter that you cut out. And then you conflate the plot reveal, you know, with Ned in the room much later on. Yeah, because the um, in the show, Littlefinger's people show up and then take her to a brothel. Yeah, and right. <laughs> um, and Roderick's still with him, with her, uh-huh. not out running around. And then Varys sneaks in, 
which you know if you're if you're trying to set the stage for Littlefinger and and just you know the cityscape, but you're also HBO, then why not just have four why or five naked people walk through <laughs> randomly? <laughs> Right, sure. Why just have the whole? They have every scene set in a brothel for a season, right? <laughs> yeah, just try to. Man, we got to make sure all the sixteen-year-olds are staying up and uh, watching it at night. I do think that this chapter does a lot to introduce sort of the city of King's Landing, and I, mm-hmm. I'll be honest here, I felt zero nostalgia reading this chapter. I felt like being able to revisit Winterfell, revisit sort of Tyrion along the road, revisit even Danny's view of the Dothraki. I got a lot of nostalgia for this story. Rereading this chapter, I just felt like, oh no, King's Landing, nothing good is going to happen in King's Landing. <laughs> I just, it really was this feeling of a sort of ominous dread. Like, I don't want to revisit King's Landing. This is a horrible place where horrible things happen. So I don't know. How did you, what was your experience rereading this? Yeah, well, reading it back again, and I haven't read the book in a while, I was much more interested in Caitlin because the Mm. show doesn't have the whole uh, Lady Stoneheart bit and wondering. And Caitlin in the show just doesn't, is, is not like simultaneously the one who understands what King's Landing is, but also has like fierce mommy bear energy. Sure. Right, and and she's more much more compelling as a character in the book to me. Oh, absolutely. And, and so that was the part of this scene that really stuck out. The other thing is just you know after you kind of know how things go down, the moment Littlefinger shows up, I'm just like, yeah, you should have knifed him. You know, and just <laughs> right, yeah, I kill him right then and there. Jeez. All right, so let's talk more about this power. I mean, in a literal sense. Neither Cat nor Littlefinger nor Varys really have that sort of brute strength that someone like Roderick Castle has, right? Mm-hmm. But because of, like you say, subtle, because of the way that they wield their influence, they're almost more powerful and more interesting because of it. Littlefinger has this move where he will plant seeds or give suggestions and stuff to people. But if they resist, say, like, Sansa leaving, mm-hmm. right, uh, town or whatever, escaping, then he's like, oh, no, 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 oh, oh, no, you know, until she's, like, begging him. And so he has this thing where he'll, like, plant seeds but then give the power to the person that's technically over him as he slowly weaves people in and lets them feel like they're in control. And so right. even in this scene, it's his freaking not a dagger, but, but he's trying to plant it on the imp and letting Varys appear mm-hmm. like the sneaky one with his little birds and all that kind of stuff. But that all, you know, all the while when you're looking back, you're like, "Mm, little fingers, a little sneaky little turd. Well, on on top of that, what does he do when she comes to town? He makes sure that she and he are the first to meet, right? Mm -hmm. He makes sure that they have a, a little moment alone in the tower room first. So he arranges for that to happen. But the whole thing, he kind of points to Varys. He's like, this is this is not really me. Varys knew you were coming to town, and it was right. Var- Varys's idea to bring you here. And of course, Varys's little birds tell him everything. He Varys knows everything. You know, he's really sort of downplaying his role in the scheme and making Varys seem like like he's a much more formidable 
political player. Mm -hmm. So even then, even then he's like, he's pulling the strings, but it's better for him if everyone thinks that Varys has a lot more strength. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it's, brilliant. It's brilliant. Because, I mean, he does the same thing. Um, I mean, I mentioned like Sansa's escape and stuff, but also like how he plays Little Robin. Oh yeah, in similar ways, sure. right? Like he also will be the butt of jokes. Right? <laughs> People will just pick, will like put him down, dismiss him, and he'll just he'll tolerate it to play the long game. He'll leak info. And then, you know, apologize. Right. I, he He's like one of those people that if you figure out they're in your life, you just got to cut them out. <laughs> and, well, yeah, because he's he's the mag. He's the, he's like a maggot in your rice. He's like he's going to if you don't know what he's doing or where he is, like you don't want to you don't want him anywhere near your rice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I was talking to. One of my friends about oh rereading it, and he's a huge Game of Thrones fan. He's like, and I was saying how I, I was like, man, Littlefinger, he's just so sneaky. He's he does way more with what he's working with, you know. Uh, and uh, he goes, yeah, he's like Brady Anderson. That one year he hit you know fifty home runs on the juice on the Orioles. <laughs> and I thought there's a small group of people that get that reference and it's wonderfully accurate, right? Like, <laughs> he, like he he's not Sammy Sosa or Mark McGuire, but you know for that one season. The drugs just really worked until he made you know, the absolute most of everything available to him, right? Yeah. He uh, he had his know. glory days. Just you get a big battle. He's like the hero bringing the army out. It's all right. going good. It's all going good until whoops. Well, didn't. let's talk about his relationship with Kat. Do you think that. So he's in love with Cat, or at least he thinks he is. Like in whatever mm-hmm. his sort of sociopathic way of being in love with Cat is, he he feels like he's in love with Cat. Do you think that his advances were repelled by Cat, or do you think that there was something there when they were kids? Hmm. Okay. I would say it's kind of like. You know, you're, she's married now. She's got kids and stuff, and she's just sitting around in the hot tub in the castle. And all of a sudden, she gets a friend request from this guy she went to, yeah. <laughs> you know, freshman dance with. Right. And it was a nice time. Like, they were technically friends, but they kind of held hands between things. And she thought he was going to kiss him that one time until uh-huh. he got beat. And <laughs> if you are having a bad day... I don't know. Your husband ran off with all but two of your kids, and one of them stuck in a bed. Right, and then you see, like, like what? What would have happened? Maybe that, that something like that. Okay, I I like the analogy. I absolutely like like the analogy. So you're getting kind of an old flame vibe here. I was getting it too, and maybe it's like maybe it wasn't sort of like they were romantically involved, but I think that there was some reason. That Littlefinger thought that he might have a chance with her, like a nostalgia play. Yeah, right? yeah. Before things got this complicated, don't you remember? Right, and just and you know, sort field. of playing up on like simpler times, and you know, we were all young and happy back then. And don't you feel like you know? Wouldn't that be nice to feel that way again, like the way you felt when you were sixteen or something like that? And you know, if you're 16, though, and Varys is in the corner 
flicking his fingers together, talking about little birds. That it's super creepy. It's uh, yeah. Well, yeah. You bring in right. You show up for your like class reunion, but your wingman is a eunuch. Yeah, with too much perfume and totally bald. You know, you look so much better in comparison, yeah. and no competition. Right, there's no, no competition. Exactly, exactly, no competition. So, I think at this point, Catelyn is thinking, "Yeah, there's no way, there's no way that Littlefinger's advances are going to work on me." But just reading ahead a little bit further, by the time she leaves King's Landing, she really feels like Littlefinger is an ally, mm-hmm. and so he wins that round. He doesn't get her to like cast off Ned and like elope or anything, but he's all about the slow plays, all about the long game. So he absolutely wins that round, right? Yeah, it's like a double off the center field wall. It didn't get over, but you you're in scoring position. And exactly. like you're still in the game. Still you're still at the bat. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I like that analogy a lot. Yeah, the the bit further in the you know further ahead that pop that popped up when I was reading it was you know he has a number of reveals with both Catelyn and with uh, Sansa either like a knowledge or an object, but when he brings Ned's body to Catelyn, yeah, that time he still has that same vibe except it creeps me out. I really did want to see that sort of complicated relationship with Littlefinger and Catelyn, I want to see it more. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that we get more of it as sort of Lady Stoneheart because she's like a revenge monster, right? Yeah. And the more she learns, I, I hope her sense is that if she wants revenge, you know, Littlefinger has got to be at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated how the show did it, but I hope, I hope that the books are able to sort of play with that relationship a little bit more. I you know, even if it doesn't, I just hope it comes out. I feel like I should just, you know, mail him some of that limitless drug, you know? <laughs> it's like the PEDs for scholars. George, like, <laughs> George we need a, a matrix type uh, download of everything in your head. We'll feed all that stuff to an AI and the AI will just construct this, you know, a narrative. A narrative. If I, I was him, I would have a some agreement i get like a bunch of notes in a box or whatever uh-huh. and like a, a few a, a few people that are like super fans that come up with stuff that you stole from but you don't want to acknowledge from reading the boards <laughs> and you you know that if you die they finish it but they don't tell anyone and you think oh this is good but yeah. how are they going to get away then he little fingers it like the guy that was getting off the boat when yeah. uh sansa was escaping and he just caps that guy. He leaves no, he doesn't, there's no one to tell tales. Dead man tell no tales. Like, uh, so he got like ma- some super fan yeah. ghost rights, pretends it was an editing process. You want him to do Magor the Cruel, where all of the <laughs> builders, all of the builders of the Red Keep, yeah, are destroyed after the, after the secrets are revealed just to that one guy. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm open to a lot of options here. I don't want to <laughs> necessarily break the murder commandment. Like, we could break one of the others. I don't know. But Mangor the Cruel, that, that brings up some of the things that are introduced in this chapter. So we meet Captain Moreo and the Storm Dancer. He's going to mm-hmm. show up very briefly and leave. And uh, Then we meet, for the first time, the Great Sept of Baelor. 
and we hear of Megor the Cruel. We hear about the Dragon Pit for the first time, and famously, Varys's Little Birds. Oh, yeah. The Little Birds, that, again, King's Landing is a horrible place where horrible things happen. <laughs> it is. Hey, have you ever been to the... Okay, this is this off the beaten track, but you're a, a religion scholar, so... Have you ever been to the Baha'i House of Worship in Chicago? No. Okay, if you're ever ever in Chicago, I think it's just outside of Chicago, there's this temple. It's this massive, beautiful temple called the Baha'i House of Worship. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah and I went there a couple of summers back. And um, it uh, just architecturally, it's just magnificent. And when I was there, it kind of gave me like a great sept of Baylor vibe. It's enormous, it's domed, but it's got these nine pillars. And of course, you know, the sept has seven crystal spires or whatever it is. But I was really getting a great sept vibe when I visited this uh, Baha'i temple. It's magnificent. If you're ever in Chicago, as a religion person, it's a really fun visit. Well, I am uh, eagerly looking forward to be anywhere other than my house. <laughs> we have real lockdown in Scotland, so I still can't leave three kilometers. Now, what's away the from vaccination like there? Are you uh, are you vaccinated? I got again? mine yesterday. Oh, nice. Yeah, first got, or second? A, the first one. Okay. Now, will things so, change for you once you get the second, or is it still I don't kind know of what locked the rules down? Are I, no, you can't do anything. I'm just feeling more of an American every day now, you know? I see a lot of my friends doing things that look human and fun. What do I do? Mm -hmm. I sit in a basement and pretend. I snuck into school the other day to get a book. That's how edgy I am. (laughs) They probably gave you a key when you first arrived, right? Yeah. Key to the library. You want to know? Well, no, I've had it in my office. and So I'm at the University of Edinburgh, and the... New College, where I am, is right next to the castle. So if you've sure. never seen Edinburgh Castle, like it's hardcore. Yeah, um, sure, sure. Talk, it's talk one about the, a, like a Red Keep vibe. Yeah, it's legit. Like out my window is the castle. And so, you know, for a while, when I could still go in the office, I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, I, I can just look at the castle and uh-huh. and uh, I go outside, smoke my pipe, which just just so I could smoke a pipe next to a castle and feel like a <laughs> hobbit or whatever. Yeah, but right. Now you got to sneak in, but we have a giant gate with like big metal key you have to get in before it gets to the technological parts. So uh, just for my little trip, I put it on a necklace just so I could have a big iron key on a necklace and walk up and open it like I was just like Gandalf helping somebody in, you know? Speak friend and enter. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. I mean, that's the experience of Scotland that you kind of want, especially when you're studying something old. Mm -hmm. I always felt like when I'm, if I'm studying ancient history, I don't want to be in a modern library. I want to be like in a dusty basement of a stone library that kind of like, you know, inspires you to study ancient history. That was my experience at Durham anyway. Plus, the museums here have a lot of really, really old stuff because. They were one of the OG empires and just stole it. Yeah, that's how they used to do things. <laughs> that's how they do things. If you want a museum, you need really great thieves first. <laughs> thieves and a navy. <laughs> just... 
All right, let's uh, just a really quickly here. I, I have a couple questions for you. The first is this: of all the characters in all the books, the character that you most feel like deep down inside, as opposed to the character that your friends and family think you are. Huh. Okay. So, I I well, it might be because we're reading this section, but I have a lot of Caitlin. Like I, I'm uh. like fiercely loyal to family and sure. friends. Yeah. And if I'm not doing that, I'm like perfectly good at being strategic and uh, thoughtful, playing the games that are necessary. But if like close friend, family members up, I'm like uh, ready to cut something. And then people are like, where did that come from? You're, I'm like, well, I, I, I'm a pacifist in theory. <laughs> But, like, but you come you... at my son with a knife, <laughs> yeah, and I kind of might destroy myself trying to ruin your life. Oh, all right, you know, like I, I get the the like deep fidelity, and then once the 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 kind of uh, the fierceness comes out, like I'd want to be, uh, yeah, I'm, I mostly just want to drink and know things. That's what I would like to do. Uh-huh. But if you were, that's probably what you know the contrast of expectations versus. So I, I like I like this because this is kind of surprising to some people that know you that you have that that part of you. So who do they think you are? Ooh, um, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? Let's see here. Friends and family of Trip Fuller. I yeah, I got the perfect guy. They probably look at you and think that you're. Maester Marwin. Ooh. They probably look at you and think, there's this guy and he does this weird stuff with theology. It's a little hocus pocus. He's traveling the world, learning about things. He wears a big old iron key around his neck, smoking a pipe. Yeah. They probably look at you and think that you're Maester Marwin. Well, that's not a bad option, though. You see? Like, I... I take that as a, I take that as an affirmation. <laughs> but deep down inside, you're you're a little lady Stoneheart. Well, that you have to do something first, right? But sure, because she doesn't have a cool key. <laughs> I think if I could have a cool key, uh, that when the people see it, they're like, mm-hmm. I bet his office is next to the castle. I bet it is. Look at that key. <laughs> that's that's what I'm talking about. My next question is this. Uh, so you've recorded like some sort of like thousand podcasts or some absurd number with Homebrewed, right? Yes. What would be your favorite interview that you did with Homebrewed Christianity? Like, fa- what kind of favorite? You know, like one that you're like the most proud of, or like you know, like a really good get, or like after the interview you thought. That was just a really great episode of Homebrewed. Well, I mean, like the cool gets that are, I mean, like Scholar World, not that people listening to this are going, no, there's plenty of them. Uh, but uh, the coolest ones that were, you know, normal people know would be like Ewan McGregor or uh, uh, Morgan Freeman. Yeah, yeah. Like those, but like in in Nerd World, like the one that when I got done, I was like, oh, Praise the Lord. Was the the first time I interviewed Jack Caputo. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. It was 
Um, we talked for like two and a half hours, right? Right. And after that, we became friends. Oh, that's so that's fun. That's super fun. Uh, but I mean, I've gotten to interview most of my like big heroes, like you know, like Jurgen Moltmann and Catherine Keller and mm-hmm. uh, John Cobb. And uh, recently, I've been doing a lot on uh, religion and science because my I have a big research problem project I'm working on right now on panpsychism. Um, what so, is? Tell me what panpsychism is. Oh, so so in kind of philosophy of mind right now, there for a long time, if you asked. Um, you know, what consciousness is, the the popular opinions were kind of, it's not really real. <laughs> it, you get this kind of reductionistic, materialistic right, right. Uh, account. Yeah, it's chemistry you in get, your brain or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, the, which is what someone like Francis Crick said. Uh, and then you have those that uh, argue for a type of dualism. Right, so you get the scientific account of the body, but then there's like the soul or the spirit or the right, mind, right. and they're hooked together, and you don't know how, but it's kind of supernatural, so it all works out, right? In philosophy of mind, both of those answers are, were problematized because on the kind of reductionistic account, you can't really make sense of our first-person experience. Like, what is it like for Anthony to be Anthony? The only one with access to that's you. And I can't brain scan it and go, oh, that's what it's sure. like to be Anthony. Okay. I might be able to make correlates between things in your consciousness and that kind of stuff. So uh, panpsychism is one of the responses that says our account of the world has to include within it our own first-person experience of ourselves and likely other entities have a first-person experience, like other humans or other creatures. Panpsychism said uh, – you know, if you're acknowledging mind in the world, then you either have to say that there's some type of mind-like part to all things, that, you know, each, the monist part of the universe has a mind and a physical side, uh-huh. uh, and then it gets more complicated as things evolve over time and more complex relationships and networks and information and such. Or you have to say that there was a time there was no mind and boom, it appeared, right, in the cosmic story. Uh it's more parsimonious philosophically to say that mind-like reality is innate to uh, material. So at, when we think of matter as just like mm, uh, you know the pan a, part of it, a thing, the pan is like all has mind. Um, and then in science, in a number of different sciences right now, there's been moves towards panpsychism, uh, be it in the brain sciences, uh, in uh, anthropology, in what's called the ontological turn. So I'm currently running a research project that brings together uh, scientists from different disciplines and philosophers from different schools of philosophy that look at uh, the place of mind in nature. Hmm. And so it's co- the big project that I'm working on right now is called the mindfulness of nature. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, hmm. I love it. It's so fascinating. So homebrewedchristianity.com, is that where people find out about what you're doing? Yeah, it's all it's on the internet, and it's trip with two p's. If you type in trip fuller, just type in yeah, just type in trip two p's fuller. Well, and it, and if you like the Game of Thrones, then they clearly should go listen to you and I discuss religion in the Game of Thrones. That's true. We did do that, and uh, <laughs> and then the and then Aaron's visit during the final season. Oh, that's great. I, you know, I don't think I knew that. Aaron visited, but I'll have to have a listen to that too. It's rare that a podcast guest has a more impressive beard than mine, and <laughs> I just felt so intimidated the whole time. I was yeah, like, of course. "Like you know, you're if you're a podcaster, 
and a religion scholar talking to other religion scholars, they're like, you're cool. You use the internet. But if you're talking to Aaron and you're me, you're like, no, you're cool because what you talk about is cool. Because your beard doesn't get in the way of your microphone. How do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> How? Like, you're a pro. You're a real pro. <laughs> All right, man. This has been super fun. And I, I, I'd love to have you back on, talk a little bit more about you know, how you use the book in your classroom. That'd be a lot of fun. And then I'll have to you know, like, make you decide, like if you were stuck on an island and you could only have Game of Thrones or, uh, <laughs> or, the Bible. or Middle Earth. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I'll put that Bible on there, too. Like, you, you can get, you can get uh, any religion, sacred scriptures, <laughs> Tolkien or Martin. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, to- <laughs> yeah, probably Tolkien every time. He's got enough. Uh, he's got enough Christianity between the lines. You can learn all the languages by the time you leave the island. Well, with Tolkien, it's a tight man. The story is super tight all the way to the end. The latter books in Game of Thrones or Ice and Ice and Fire, mm-hmm. there are some errant threads that kind of go nowhere. So, well, plus, uh, what if the if you did pick. Martin, you would actually get the whole. Oh, the whole books see, now, that now been you're talking. <laughs> see, now you're now you're talking my language. Um, yeah, no. If I could get wins and uh, dream of spring, I would probably just voluntarily go to a desert island so I could just sit yeah. and read them. See, now I know. <laughs> Steve, have you ever held a position in middle management? Uh, yes, I have. This is a great middle management episode for Tyrion. <laughs> it totally is. You've got a plan. You're a little reluctant to share it. <laughs> well, your superior is Joffrey, right? Yes. So that makes it difficult. Well, no, and that 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 resonates probably more <laughs> in terms of my career. <laughs> yeah. So Joffrey's a great. He's a. <laughs> he's the great CEO, right? Yeah. And then you've got a lot of incompetency below you as well, right? Yeah. You've got the hound who's just like, look, I, I got other things going on here. <laughs> I, I know that it's on my job description. I've got other stuff happening. I'm just going through <laughs> some things right now. It's like, yeah, a you, siege. <laughs> that's the thing. What did you think there was going to be? You, your whole thing is, oh, I love to kill people. It's like, well, kill a bunch. Kill a bunch. This is this is one of there those, they are. This is one of those rare business and pleasure melding situations. This is the good part. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you got that one guy, Braun, who's just like he's your go-to guy. You, you really need one person working under you that knows what they're doing, right? Yeah, because and here's the irony to a certain degree: is that Tyrion is that guy to Joffrey, but is not recognized as such. This is a great little vision you have. Now, let me go make it work in the real world. Right. Sir Ellen Payne has a serious case of what I call Muppet Face. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, refresh me on Sir Ellen Payne. Okay. All right. Think of the most Muppety guy in the room with Cersei and Sansa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he's not saying anything because his tongue has yeah. been cut out. No, he is. Yeah, he's. <laughs> He's like a spitting image doll. Yeah. He looks like he should be in a Phil Collins video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's. And he has like one note, like he doesn't say anything, but his face, it's like they needed an actor for the role. 
They said, you have no lines because you have no tongue. And this guy's thinking, well, then I should use my face <laughs> to make this role just as expressive as I can. I need to scream. Nope. With, scream with my face. Nope. It's in your contract. You may only have one face. <laughs> in fact, the, he goes into makeup every day to make sure that they just get that one face. <laughs> yeah, right. It's just a mask. It's it's that Phil Collins artist. <laughs> I wonder if they even needed an actor for that. Yeah, I mean, I will say that that's that was one of those moments where I did feel like every time they went to him, I'm like, is this is this funny? <laughs> he is the comic relief of this episode. <laughs> totally is. <laughs> you know what? On my rewatch here, I was thinking about Cersei's position because she really is sort of the. I mean, she's just so evil in this episode. Yeah, <laughs> just and yet. Which is interesting she, because there, there was there were these elements of humanization that they tried to yes. insert like episodes prior, and then the, yes. and then and then you know she did the turn the last one with when uh, we all thought that she had Shay, but then you know we kind of saw that okay she's back to being like kind of gleefully macabre, and then yeah wow, she's it's, she's statistic, I, I, statistic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> This is not your, is your word. You, you, you've never been good with the word statistic unless you're trying to say the word sadistic. That's true. <laughs> and when I'm a little drunk, it's a lot worse. Oh, yeah. And, and you're a lot more stubborn about your ability to say it. In fact, you're insistent that your misspeaking is right. Not many people know that about me, Steve. <laughs> And now a lot of people know that. <laughs> That's the goal. Um, she, okay, let's just put it this way. A bored Cersei is very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's for sure. But I think on rewatch, I saw her in a new light. I was thinking, you know, this was Cersei's idea to stockpile the wildfire. Right. Right. She, it was her idea from the beginning to use the wildfire to protect the city. And Tyrion swoops in and takes it over. And Tyrion gets to be the hero, right? I mean, well, the thing is, seemingly. yeah. I mean, what we don't know is like what was what was her plan, right? Like, I mean, she was crafty enough. Yeah, she to, might have burned the whole place, <laughs> right? She, yeah, she may have just said, uh, "Sir Ellen Payne, uh, as soon as they breach the wall, uh, throw this at us." <laughs> yeah. Right. So all we know, yeah, we, she, we know that she had the going back to sort of your CEO corporate middle management concept like it's not uncommon for somebody like higher up on the board or maybe it is a a c level and when they're just all right like here's what i what do you think about this wildfire now you guys go figure that out right and and they pat themselves on the back and it's a no lose proposition right if it succeeds well i gave you the tools if it doesn't succeed well these idiots can't execute but now in this case she didn't have that right she just had the concept and then Tyrion right. ran with it right yeah that's right and she's kind of stewing in, in that powerlessness right so she had the idea and then it was someone swooped in took it away from her which maybe is a good idea like maybe she would have blown up the whole city right but even so that doesn't happen if she's born male right she right she's probably hand of the king or whatever at this point and so she's really She's really in her feelings yeah. right now, and so now she needs some sort of lesser creature to torture, and so she chooses Sansa, and she chooses Shay. 
Well, and it's about agency, right? And and that's something that she's been revealing in her conversations that seemed almost human with Sansa prior is the sense of like, don't fall in love with anybody. Uh, you're going to, you know, it'll make you do foolish things and compromise and all that stuff. And you sex, you sex to your advantage. Yeah, and just and and so she's got all this, and then but it's like so it's the idea of like, look, you are you've you've given up all agency, but for her that like, it she presents it in such a way that isn't so much like a what a virtue it is to serve. It's like this is what you're gonna have to do, and it's gonna suck. And so in her situation, she's like, so so it it makes sense. She's she's not giving it up. She's not interested in giving it up. And she's willing to die. I mean, she. in fact, she's like... She seems pretty arrested that this thing is just not going to work. She almost wants to die. There almost seemed to be a sense of this is my last go. And it seemed like everybody in that room that we knew, except with the exception of Shay, is like, whatever it takes for this to be over. She is put in an impossible position. And... I think she's resolved that she's going to die. And so she's just going to strap on a drunk. And there's no reason not to tell the truth about pretty much everything in her life to Sansa. Right. So she gets really vulnerable. And in that moment, she gets humanized. Yeah. Tyrion has a couple of nice little exchanges with Bronn where he says, uh, he calls him friend. Yeah. yeah. And Bronn's like, well, the, oh, we're friends now. <laughs> well, and there is an element of that, too. Just like, I'm not sure we're going to make it out of it. Like, that's, this is that Im- impending doom is going to do its best to bring out whatever humanity may be lurking in some of these folks, right? Well, you kind of see the different personality types leading to a crisis. And you kind of see that showcased in that first scene with Bronn and the Hound where right. they almost fight. Yeah. Where the hound is sort of like, he's all business. And he's really got just, he's really just got one story. He's just got one story, and that's how everybody likes to kill. He's a killer. Yeah. He's a, he wants everyone to know he's a killer. I know you like to kill. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know you just gave this speech, bro. But not everyone has heard the speech yet. I get the sense that they have. I get the sense that this guy goes around town. And everyone's like, oh, geez, here we go. We're going to hear about how much he wants to kill. No, let me guess. I do too. Right. Okay, here we go. He's got to give the speech to every character. All right. So he has a scene where, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. The fans are going to want to know, Steve. Yeah. Who would win in a fight between the Hound and Braun? Well, I think I would have said the Hound before I saw him. Uh, you know, he got a little, he, he got shaken Well, he up. has kryptonite. He's got that one kryptonite. Yeah. And but Braun doesn't know about the kryptonite. It's true. He doesn't know about it. But the fact that it exists, we don't know. Yeah, it. at this point, we don't think like, Braun can do no wrong. Every he He's like, he's got 100% winning percentage. Well, and yeah, and Braun seems to be, he's, he's craftier and more intelligent than I think his role would normally allow. He, he seems like he, he would be able to figure out or at least ascertain that there is some kryptonite for the hound i mean the hound he'll disembowel you like in a second well he will cut you in half like and that's not i mean very literal yeah what is what is where is the fans are they split on this i think it's one of the one of the favorite debates among the folks who take this too seriously (laughs) 
and I'm probably one of these folks. God bless them. Uh, they are my tribe. Um, <laughs> we we like to imagine who's who's going to win. We want to see the fight to the death between Ned and Jamie, and we're a little disappointed when it doesn't play out. Right. So uh, you know there are going to be people that say, "Look, the hounds he, the hounds going to beat anyone just because he's bigger, bigger and stronger." Right. The Hound has another scene at the end with Sansa, and he offers to take her home. Yeah. And she turns him down, even though it seems like she's got something of a realization that he's not all that dangerous. He's not as dangerous as he seems. Well, and Joffrey's more dangerous, I would. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what, what do you think? What do you think about her decision not to go with him? That was it. I'll be honest. I, I that one that one vexed me a little bit. Um, I mean, I guess the thought is is that uh, if if she leaves with, I mean, the thing is is that she had an opportunity, right? I mean, she could leave with the hound and say that she was taken. But I wonder. I'm wondering is is there enough Ned in her that feels like she can still that that she could still serve her family better in this capacity? I, I didn't. I never considered that. A part of it. The the one thing that I thought was that when Cersei leaves for the throne room, immediately Sansa starts playing the propaganda game. She tells all of the women in the room, hey, everything, good news. The king is out. You know, he's rallied the troops. Everything's in hand, right? So she's just making stuff up. Right. But she's doing it in such a way that it's almost like She's playing the part that Cersei should have been playing all along. Right. And there's part of me that thinks she doesn't want to give this up. She kind of enjoys the idea of being queen. Right. And if she leaves with the hound, that's all over. Yeah. There's no. This episode for Sansa is a little bit, um, let's say, multiple personality. Mm-hmm. Because the, when we first meet her, she's really sort of showing up Joffrey as a fool, right? Right. And sort of taunting him, goading him to go to the vanguard. And even when he calls her a stupid girl, then she says, "I well, you're right, I am stupid. Of course you're going to be in the vanguard. So she, she seems very savvy in that conversation. Um, and pretty bold about it. Yeah, yeah. And then when she's sitting with Cersei, she could be like five years old with the question she's asking. And the demeanor that she's striking. I don't get the sense that she's sort of putting on a uh, show for Cersei. Yeah, and that's, I think, where the decision to not go with the Hound was all the more vexing, right? Because I mean, it's like you look at the earlier part, and she seems to be goading Joffrey to death. Yeah. And that's great for everyone, right? I mean, it's it's especially great for her. But then there's the question of, like, is it, right? Like, something. let's say something happens and Joffrey dies. But Cersei lives and Stannis does not take over. What is she then? What's well, she's a hostage. She's a, and she's purely, purely that's her. And that becomes her best case scenario. Probably is that she still holds value. She has value alive, but not, but not great. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess she's like a lot of 13-year-olds where, like, she is the child. She's still the child. She can go up and, like, pick up the doll that her dad gave her. But at the same time, she can sort of put on a 
a, a good front in acting adult when she yeah, needs she to. She might have also been a little drunk. Yeah, no kidding. Of course she's drunk. I never even thought about this. Yeah, so I mean, she's that's totally drunk. That's another thing to consider, right? I mean, like, like she's she's been being fed wine and lines from Cersei. She's in the middle of one of the most probably tension filled situations right. that she's been in for a minute, and uh, and, and it, the scariest guy she's ever met it ha- just happens to be hanging out in her room, right? <laughs> Instead of fighting the battle, which is like, so wait, you're one of the bigger assets for this, and you're not here. Where am I, how are we getting out of here? Are you even my safest path? <laughs> yeah, earlier in the episode, she hears about these people that have tried to flee the city and that end up getting beheaded. Yeah, okay, that's fair. So she's thinking, yeah, you're going to try to flee the city. I know what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up with your head on a spike and either I'll die or, you know, I'll be, I'll be in a much worse position politically. Right. Yeah, so now we've got okay, so we, we now we have Tywin comes in and saves the day. So now I mean you've got this whole new set of complications. I mean, especially for Tyrion. Right. I mean that, yeah, the, right. the the family dynamic, which is already complex, is even more so now, right? Because I mean, well, the rightful hand is back. Well, not only that, but the acting hand just got his face sliced, right? Right. And it, it's not like Tywin can say, All right. I'm going back out, you know, Tyrion, take over. Yeah. So there's that element of it, which is super complex. And, you know, I mean, everybody's chanting for half, man. He had a moment. He had a moment. And how long does that moment last? Right. I mean, does that moment like, I mean, I started thinking like, okay, so they're, they're, you know, Tyrion's not going to argue with his father over who should be the hand or not. Um, I wouldn't think, but there may be potential for sowing the seeds of, uh, of, of some sort of a revolt. I mean, right. he won, you know, he won some people over big time, right? I mean, like he, not only did he have the strategy to use the wildfire, but, uh, he, he stepped up when, when the King retreated. And he knew about the secret tunnel. He knew about right? the secret That's- tunnels. He, he got, he, he took it to the face. Right. I mean, there's something to be said for that. Right. Like, I mean, he not only well, he led. Yeah, right. He led the troops. He struck the first blow. They were chanting half. Man. It was not a, a vain effort by any stretch because, I mean, he could have easily died on the battlefield. He put himself in a position to be killed on the battlefield while leading. And <laughs> the Hound didn't do that. That's right. Um, That's right. And it was almost like there's no one left. So it's like the really dark moment. These soldiers are just waiting for their doom, right? Right. And sure, the Lannisters come riding in and they do work uh, their magic, but without even at least this battle that Tyrion has uh, engineered, the wall is probably breached and then they're coming in on the back end and now they're at a disadvantage. So when Tywin comes in, well, first the, the first person that comes in is Loras, right? Right. And we have not seen these two together before. And I think that this is supposed to be shorthand for Littlefinger was able to broker this alliance between the Tyrells and the Lannisters. I like that there was a little historical morsel. The Hound is afraid of fire, right? Right. So he comes back in and Tyrion kind of chides him and says, can I get you some iced milk with some raspberries or something (laughs) like that? 
that's an, a sort of a callback to Nero, who was the first person, at least in the Western world, to invent ice cream. Mm. Now, this had been done in, in uh, China beforehand, but uh, Nero used to have ice brought down from the mountains, and he used to like m- like cool milk and have it with like fruits and whatnot. He was also he also did some other horrible stuff, but <laughs> but, but I mean, come on! If you invent ice cream, yeah, yeah, where we will forgive almost anything else you've done, right? Oh, I would, your legacy is the problematic person who gave us this delicious treat. <laughs> so right, exactly. So yeah, I thought it was. It seemed a little out of place. Like, oh, he's offering him ice cream. Do you even have ice cream? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they did. Uh, season finale. What would you like to see? wrapped up in the season finale what are you invested in beyond what we saw in this episode i feel like we already talked about you know what's going to happen with the whole tywin Tyrion dynamic right right Uh, yeah so that part i'm very intrigued by i'm very intrigued by what's going to happen to theon it's a plot line that i didn't think i was going to get as into as i have well, he's I, painted himself into a corner up there, and it's somewhere you're kind of thinking, how is he going to get out of this? Or is he going to get out of right. this? Right, and not only that, but like, what is what is going to be the cost of him trying to get out of it, even if he doesn't get out of it? In addition to that, because we didn't... Let's, let's assume Tyrion doesn't die this right. episode. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and assume that. Um, because we didn't get a major death, it almost feels like... Well, there's got to be one coming. There's got to be something like that. Kind that's of. how I. That's how I feel because you don't cliffhang on the second to last episode that Tyrion's dying. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, to me, the Tyrion is he or isn't he is right up there with. Oh, are, is that Bran and Ricky Walnuts? <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna see more of what happens with Theon, which means, of course. We have to see more of Brandon Walnuts, right? Right. I I'm looking forward to the the Brienne Jamie yeah I, yeah for ex- sure exchange uh, that roadshow seems important to me. I'm kind of curious to see what ends up happening with the Arya roadshow because she's her and Hot Pie and yeah because that just that just happened and and their whole mission is a little different now or whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have to see what happens with the warlocks of Karth and Danny's dragon. Right. Yeah. I mean, they... it doesn't sound like either of us are are that enamored with. No, it. this is definitely one of those like I'm gonna have to trust you because <laughs> because every time it, it's like ah oh, here we go it's like uh, it's like it's like oh this is a Chachi episode okay. <laughs> I, that absolutely is an original take. And people have been talking about this show for <laughs> over a decade. No one has equated Danny, who's arguably one of the two main characters of the show. Sure. No one has associated her with Chachi before <laughs> this podcast. And I'm telling you, there's millions of people <laughs> trying to come up with hot takes. <laughs> For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to go a little bit meta with you and talk about this podcast. 
So season two of Electric Boogaloo is drawing to a close. Next week will be chapter 19. And then after that, Steve and I will do a wrap-up podcast related to season two of the HBO adaptation. So I'm thinking hard about the shape of Electric Boogaloo going forward, and I'd love to hear from you. I have three kind of convoluted questions to ask. First, what have you liked most about this podcast? Do you tune in for guests like linguist David Peterson, in other words, like the super nerd professor types, or do you like the super fan types like uh, Kim Renfro or Aaron Alexis? Next week, I'll have my sister on. She's definitely in the super fan category. I like to include non-professors from time to time because I think that sometimes the banter is a little bit better. On the other hand, I've really enjoyed my conversations with philosophers and medievalists and linguists, etc. So, which do you prefer? Do you want to hear more super nerd professor types or super fan types? Second question. Steve Osborne, as you know, has become an integral part of the show-only portion. The idea here was to allow fans to experience the show again in a new way, but also to find what's most funny about each episode. The show conversations, I thought, would be a way to keep the show only folks listening. My question is this. How many of you tune in for the Steve Osborne segment only? I'm specifically curious about how many listeners are skipping the main interview to get to the Steve segment. So that would be really helpful for me to know. And then finally, my suspicion is that the more I bring on repeat guests, the more I can build a sense of familiarity. But peppering in new blood from time to time seems like a good idea too. So here's my third question. Would you prefer more repeat guests or more new guests or a balance of both? You can send your answers to book at baldmove.com and I am always grateful for the feedback. <laughs>